Hi, my name is Stuart Weems and welcome to the Investopoly podcast. My goal is to share easy to understand, evidence-based, holistic insights to help you master the game of building wealth. And in this episode, I'd like to talk about the share market. It certainly kicked off the year on a positive note. And only a few days ago, the US reached a record high, although as I'm recording this podcast, it's come off a, a little bit. Point being, the last few months have been incre an incredible positive ride, which is great for share investments and also super. But there are some risks to be careful of. And also, most importantly, there's some opportunities. And that's what I wanted to talk about today. So let's start and look at historical returns, because I think historical returns over the three, five and 10 year period can help guide investment decisions or investment approach, because if a market's done incredibly well, better than average over a period of time, you need to then consider what has driven that outperformance and will it persist? And conversely, if a market is underperformed, again, you can consider the same things and consider whether there's a turnaround. So let's look at past performance then. Both the US and Japanese markets over the last 10 years have returned just a little bit more than 12% per annum. Now let's put let's put that in context. Markets, share markets, most share markets over multi-decade periods, last 40 years, have generated around 10% returns. So certainly Japan and the US have outperformed. The underperformers are really Europe, emerging markets, and the UK. So Europe's done around at 7.5%, and emerging markets and UK about 5.5% over the last 10-year period. Last three years, by the way, Europe and UK have done 12% per annum. So there's a little bit that mean reversion that is starting to kick in, but certainly last 10 years, they've underperformed. And Australia's kind of bang in the middle there, around about almost 8.5%. Over the last 10 years, so kind of, you know, sort of in that middle park there. Now, when I talk about emerging markets, I should point out that you wouldn't really invest more than around about 5 to 10% in emerging markets, depending on your age and stage of life and risk profile. So emerging markets typically attracts a, a smaller proportion of the portfolio just because it has a higher level of risk and, and volatility. So when I talk about emerging markets, let's not get too excited and turn around and say, let's invest everything in those markets. So as I said, the US market is close to all times highs. It depends on you know what the market will do when this podcast eventually goes live. But I think it's important to consider, is the US market overvalued? And one of the indicators we can turn to is the CAPE ratio, which is an acronym for cyclically adjusted PE ratio. And what it does is it smooths out earnings, I should say, which is the E in the PE ratio, and just really looks at the valuation multiple in the market to see how that's changed. And whilst the CAPE ratio isn't a perfect indicator of future 10-year returns, it has a pretty strong correlation. There's about 80% correlation to what the CAPE ratio says today versus what the actual results will be longer term. So it's not flawless, but it's a pretty valuable indicator. Now, the US CAPE ratio is sitting at about 34, which is the second highest level in a, more than 150 years. So on that reading alone, or that measure alone, you would go, okay, we've got problems in the US market. And it certainly implies that it's overvalued. And as a result, 
10-year returns are likely to be well below average. And so that sort of plays out into that mean reversion thesis that says that if a market is outperformed for a period of time, typically that's followed by a period of underperformance. And so that the average return over those two periods is close to long-term average. And that's called mean reversion, of course. So that's the indicator, the US market indicator. That's telling us, okay, the US market could be overvalued. Let's look at some specific PE ratios. So again, price earnings ratio. So the S&P 500 is now trading on a 27 times PE ratio. The long-term average since 1871, that's a long data series, another 150 years, is about 16 times. I would say the, the general acceptable PE range for a market would be somewhere between, say, 15 to 20 times, sort of in that range, if you like. So we're at 27 times today. Certainly another measure is telling us it's overvalued. However, it's not the whole market. It's really just what the media term the Magnificent Seven. And the Magnificent Seven companies have really contributed almost all the growth in the S&P 500 over last year. That includes the seven companies, Microsoft, Apple, NVIDIA, Amazon, Meta, which is Facebook, Google, and Tesla, although of the, the seven, Tesla's a little bit of out, of out of favor with the market. It used to be in the top 10 companies. I don't think it is anymore. When I looked at the PE ratios that these Magnificent Seven are trading on, the weighted average PE ratio is 44 times earnings. That's three times more than the market's long-term average. So S&P 500, 27 times. These seven companies, 44 times earnings. Now, if we have a look at a few other different indexes, say the US mid-cap index, which looks at the sort of mid-cap companies, the 400 you know, excluding the top 100 companies, that's trading on a PE ratio of only 15 times. So that's cheap. And the equal weight index. So really, if you look at the S&P 500 companies on an equal weight basis, it's trading at 17 times. So when we look at that analysis, the US market looks expensive. It's not. The seven companies that are dominating the US market are expensive. And in fact, they're creating a problematic concentration risk. So these companies, these seven companies, according to share market valuations, are worth a combined 13 trillion US dollars. So except for Tesla, any of the other six companies individually, just that one company individually, is worth more than the entire Australian share market. And amazingly, the Magnificent Seven, collectively, are worth more than the combined value of the UK, Japanese and Canadian stock markets combined. These companies are crazy. So the Magnificent Seven now constitute over 30% of the S&P 500 index and nearly 20% of the MISCI global index, which is really the global developed stock markets. So really, if anyone's investing in the S&P 500 or even just the global index, you have a concentration risk to these seven companies that are massively value or overvalued, trading at a weighted average PE of 44 times. Well, you might think these companies are formidable, they're not going anywhere, and in fact, Stuart, they're going to perform even better in the future because of AI. And AI is going to transform these companies, transform the productivity of these companies, and as a result, transform the, hopefully, profitability of the companies. 
And that might be true. But my first argument to that would be, I would say probably all the growth upside is already factored into current prices, plus more probably. So the only way we're going to earn a return is if these companies end up delivering more than the already lofty expectations of a 44 times PE ratio. So I acknowledge that that's a potential upside, but it's more than baked into current prices. And the second thing I would say is that research affiliates produce this really good slide, and it's included in a link in the blog on the website of which you can find through the link in the show notes. Anyway, this slide um, looks at the top 10 global businesses by value in each decade. Actually, they change a lot. It's, it's surprising how much they change. And I remind people that Cisco Systems in the early 2000s was lauded as going to be the first trillion dollar company. Its market cap last time I looked was around 200, 200 billion. So it's certainly some way off and it's not even in the top 10 anymore. It was number four in the 2000s decade. So sometimes we have these market darlings and it seems like that no one's going to move them off their perch and they're going to be around and they're going to dominate forever. But the history tells us this Magnificent Seven won't be around in another decade or they won't be dominating in another decade's time. And so the, the challenge is then investors pay such a high price to invest in these companies and then they've overpaid and eventually, you know, not all of them are going to be successful longer term. And that's kind of the risk. Now, the Japanese market has done incredibly well over the last 10 years as well. In fact, it's rallied just as much as the S&P 500 since the beginning of COVID. So, you know, we had that initial sort of dip and then we've had a market rally since that time. It's trading on a PE of around 20 times. So it's high, but not terrible. It's still above the long-term average about 14 times, although that long-term average is going to be impacted by the last 20 years, or 30 years, I should say. So we'll, that, that market's been in the doldrums and really on zero interest rates for a long period of time, so that kind of skews it a little bit. It has a sort of similar concentration risk that the 10 companies account for 37% of the market. In fact, the top 17 companies account for over half of the index. So again, it has sort of similar-ish problems that the US, but not to maybe as greater extent. Now, how have we got here? Because conventional wisdom suggests that there should be an inverse relationship between interest rates and growth company valuations, which means that when interest rates are high, what that means is that these growth companies, which tend to borrow a lot of money, uh, and not of all of them are cash flow positive, so they're relying on additional debt to uh, fund growth. And when that debt costs more, the company should be worth less because obviously their cash flows are less. And also the risk-free rate is higher as well. So the hurdle rate that the company needs to return to shareholders is much higher to compensate them for the risk of investing in that company as opposed to, say, a government bond, which is almost zero risk. But probably the biggest surprise and certainly biggest surprise to me is we haven't seen any reweighting of valuations as a result of a higher interest rate environment. Now, partly could be due to earnings, like a lot of companies have still delivered on earnings despite higher interest rates. In fact, of the we're sort of halfway through the fourth quarter earnings season in the US and about 72% of S&P 500 companies have reported higher than expected earnings, which is only a smidgen below the long-term average of 75%. 
So the robustness and resilience of the US economy is certainly surprising everyone on the upside, but in a environment of higher for longer, so if interest rates are going to remain higher for longer because inflation is stubborn, and it could be, there's no signs yet, although inflation data is pretty noisy, so it's not a straight line um, journey, then uh, these companies might eventually uh, feel some pressure on earnings uh, and maybe we, we see some valuation reweightings. So let's turn our attention then to future expected returns. And I had a look at using Research Affiliates proprietary model, which uses CAPE ratio amongst other things, but it's a very deeply peer-reviewed strategy put together by some very sort of smart people. And I'll use their model to, and it spits out kind of future projected returns. And the top three markets, or let's actually talk about the top four markets, which are projected to return more than 8%, is the Japanese market is number one. Emerging markets is equal. In fact, I should say Japan and emerging markets equal around 9.1%. Australia, 8.6%. And ex-US, which is really developed economies, excluding the US, is 8.1%. The US market is the worst performing, so US large cap 3%, and that really speaks to the fact that they're kind of overvalued at the moment. US small cap 6.4%. And so these are unhedged returns. If we hedge returns, because Aussie dollar is pretty cheap at the moment, trading at 65 US cents, long-term average is 70. And in fact, a lot of forecasters think that the Aussie dollar would go to 75 cents. And so if we hedge some of these returns, they could be a percent higher. So really what it's telling us is let's avoid large cap US and let's overweight probably to emerging markets, Australia and ex-US as sort of a, an index. Now, the things that drive these future expected returns, so where will this return come from, is a combination of five things, dividends, inflation, Earnings growth, so how much will the company earn in the future compared to today, foreign exchange risk, and uh, obviously change in valuation multiples. They're the five components that the model uh, predicts in terms of coming up with a, a total return. And again, you'll see the table in the, on the blog on the website if you want to have a look at that sort of visually. So how do we accommodate some of these risks and opportunities? And I just thought I'd share a little bit about what we're doing with our client portfolios at, at ProSolution. So the first comment I would have or would make is that most clients have about 40% or more of their total portfolio invested in the Australian market. And the main reason for that is we don't have the foreign exchange risk. Um, we've got a uh, much higher dividend yield in imputation credit. So there's some attraction to having, and we've also got a fund retirement in Aussie dollars. And so the the theory is that we should have most or a lot of our wealth invested in Australian dollars in the Australian share market. And so we, instead of just using traditional market cap indexing, which we do, uh, we include some uh, mid cap exposure. We use fundamental indexing. Uh, we've got some exposure to small cap companies as well, and also some dimensional indexing. Dimensional actually listed an ETF last year, so now all investors can kind of get access to that strategy now as well. Uh, and I've got the ticker codes, the stock codes, the ETF codes uh, listed on the blog on the website if you're interested in those products that we use. Uh, we like to incorporate a greater exposure to the XUS market, 
as I said, it's predicted to outperform. So there's a couple of um, ETFs that allow you to do that. VEU is one, HEUR is another. And to accommodate the valuation concerns in the US, because we don't want to just ignore the US market, it's, it's the largest developed market in the world. And in fact, markets can run hot for a lot longer than you might expect. So we can't also bet on the fact that the US market's going to blow up tomorrow. And so we still want to have some exposure. And we do that using quality factoring indexes, um, indexes that have valuation overlays. So, you know, weed out the overvalued companies and also using equal weight indexes. And again, I cite some of or share some of the codes to the ETFs that allow you to achieve those exposures. And where possible, we like to incorporate some sustainable investment options. So that's really what's called ESG, which is an acronym that stands for Environmental Social and Governance. Another way to put it is ethical investing. You know, a lot of these companies will attract a greater share of capital market flows and as a result probably will outperform in the long run. So I think not only is it morally it aligns with a lot of people's values, but also I think there's an investment thesis there as well. And over the past few years, we've been increasing our exposure to emerging markets. We haven't been investing any more in emerging markets, but if you don't have some exposure, it might be a good time to do that. So just to sum up then, there's an overwhelming body of evidence that suggests that the idea of directing investments towards geographical markets, skewing investments towards geographical markets that exhibit better opportunities for better returns in the future, using low-cost rules-based indexing methodologies is likely to maximise your return in the long run. And I think this evidence-based approach not only maximises potential future returns, but also minimises portfolio risk. Okay, so thanks for listening. As I say, always say, please share the episode. If anyone you know might enjoy it, please share it, leave a rating, whatever you might want to do. And until next week, bye for now.